Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm a feminist, but I have created a four-year-old, arrogant, white, cis male man. And uh, <laughs> He's a, only four. We don't, a, we don't have this much information on this child. I'm a feminist, but I have a son so sexist that during lockdown, he said to me, all I ask, mummy, is that you find a man, do the work, and get a baby in that tummy. He yeah. did not say that. Yes, he did say that, yeah. He genuinely said, find a man, Yeah. do the work. Get a baby in that tummy. Does he know what the work is? Well, so he's obsessed with babies. He's obsessed with them. He wants to be some sort of dad-brother hybrid. He's really into wanting a he's baby. He's broody. Yeah, he's broody. About two, three months ago, sometime in recent but not like days ago, recent history, he'd asked me for the millionth time, and he's he's kind of okay level of intelligence now. He'd asked me for the millionth time, how do you make a baby? You know, what happens to make a baby? What goes on? He's got all these body books. He's mm. fascinated. So I thought, just do what you would have wanted from your parents. Just give a blow-by-blow, factual, so this, that, yeah, <laughs> this, that, the other. You know, I just went through what happens physically when a man and a woman have a baby. I gave a very heteronormative description of what happens. And he was like, whoa, 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 hang on. And he calls this really his kinkle. He's like, whoa, 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 hang on. The sperms come out the kinkle. And I said, yeah. He looked so worried. And he said, that sounds like it really hurts. I was like, no, 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 it doesn't. That doesn't hurt. And I said, I think I said, I mean, in fact, I think boys and men really like it. <laughs> anyway, I left it at that. Months later, last night, apropos of nothing, he's playing with Lego. He shouts to his own dad, not, you know, in their house, not with me there. 
Mummy says it's fun to get all the sperms out. Oh, no. Yeah. Where else is he going to say that? That's direct line, isn't it, to social services? Mummy says it's fun to get all the sperms out. So did his dad The context you? was he thought it was going to hurt. Yeah. Yes, his dad immediately messaged me. And said, what have you been telling what us? What earth have you said? I'm a feminist, but we have a cat that comes here sometimes that's a part-time cat yeah. called Damascus. And our cats, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but they're leave voters, Right, our cats. Look, we've got our territory. We don't really want other cats coming in. They don't get that Damascus is basically a big kitten. He's a year old, but he's very, very big. He's just huge, yeah. yeah. So he runs at them to play kitten games and they go, whoa, it's a yeah. mountain lion coming at us. And they <clears throat> sort of hiss at him or run away or you know, get very upset. And I felt so sorry for Damascus the other day because he loves them so much and he just wants to play with them. And... Our girl cats, Toast and Audrey, were not having any of it. And I said to Damascus, don't worry, Damascus. You stick together with Seymour. Don't worry about those stupid girls. <gasps> I was having Definitely. a moment and I thought, oh, my God, that came out wrongly. But they were being mean to him and they yeah. weren't being kind and open as they have been taught. They were being mean girls. They were being mean girls. I love them very much, but they were being mean girls in that moment. I'm a feminist, but. My son is so sexist and obsessed with babies that once we were eating recently, some, I think some gherkins or something was in something, and he said, is this tangy food healthy? And I said, I think it is actually. I think fermented food is good for your gut. And he went, well, I hope while you're choosing what to eat, you're thinking about whether or not it's good for your womb. <laughs> yeah. He's like an old man at a bus stop. It's like a nasty He's got old many gammon, isn't he? Little baby <laughs> wow. gammon. It's like he's one of those, you know, one of those UKIP MEPs as we had that would become the Minister for Women and Equality in Europe and then go over there and say women should be cleaning behind the fridge. You know, yes, that, that's Godfrey of, Bloom. That's right. D Godfrey oh, Bloom. God. I mean, I felt actually the first twinge of defensiveness <laughs> I've ever it's like had. My, my son, son is not Hang Godfrey on Bloom. He's not Godfrey Bloom. No, he will, there are he, boundaries even to my. <laughs> Comet. He will Deborah. he will he will grow up to be a charming man of feminist values, but small children yeah. are finding their way in the world and they're finding their tribe and their us and them. And it's uh, true. He's being raised by a feminist mother. Yeah, with a filthy um, back of fridge. Well, so that will that'll help. Not a euphemism. I'm a feminist, but whenever I hear that song, You're Beautiful, no matter what they say, I always think, what are they saying? It feels like a really passive-aggressive song to me. It feels yeah, it like, does. It's like, hang on, what have they said? Do, I, and I oh. always go, "What?" I know it's meant to be a song about loving you, yourself and your body and your face and everything just as you are yeah. and not letting anyone get you down, in the words of Christina Aguilera. Yeah. Words can't get you down, she says. But I didn't know they were saying that I wasn't beautiful. So yeah. I'm like, I go every time I go, what are they saying? I'm a feminist, but so I've got a serious one yeah. and then a funny one. I'm a feminist, but my son's so sexist, and this is the peak of it, such the point where you read this as a tweet and messaged me. But I don't think it's funny because it's so bad. But my, because my kids started school, the school are like, really like, you've got to get them to be maximum independent, no more helping them get dressed, brush their teeth, all of that. And I love it. I love being able to go, someone else has said, you've got to do this now. And he went, I'm going to get myself dressed, brush my teeth, get my own breakfast, get my shoes on, put my bag away, put my coat away, put my toys away, all that stuff at daddy's. I will not do it when I'm here. When I'm with here, you have to do everything for me forever. 
Um, and I did message horrific. you. I'm a feminist, but I, this is true. I messaged Jessica Foster Q when I saw this tweeted and said, this is probably true. But what a bitter pill to have to swallow, to have it said to your face. Yes. And know that this is your future, that this young boy is intending on turning into a man yeah. who makes you work for him forever. Yeah. And the thing is, mothers do work like that forever. And children take advantage as long as they can. And I know people in their 20s who take their washing home. Oh, my God. No, that's not going to happen. The funny side of it is my kids start school and he's so arrogant. It's not really sexist, but so big-headed. But on day one, which was a half day, I said, did you make any friends? And he went, I didn't have time for that. <laughs> and I said to him, all right. And he went, a bit later, he went, did talk to one kid, but he could only count to 60. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, I don't know. It's going to take him a long time to make friends if he's got an absolute cap on how, how, how high they can. He's how, not going to make friends with anyone who can at least I count to 100. Really count. Oh, I can really count. 200 uh, on his own. A bit more if uh, someone else is helping. Is that his opening gambit when he meets people? By yeah, the way, he I does. Can count to can I Ask me what 90, add 90 is. He does all that. Oh, no. He yeah, sounds yeah, like a David loser. Brent. Yeah. He sounds like David Brent. I do need to stop calling him. He's not a loser. He's no Godfrey Bloom. He is a bit of a David Brent. He's a bit Alan Partridge, isn't he? He's a bit Alan Partridge, but yeah. I love Rudy and I love the stories. And I, I'm already sad about the day when he... Grows out of all of this and then stops providing you with uh, comedy gold. Sad, that is a sad um, day. Also, I'm a feminist, but when Boris Johnson called for a what basically was a, a countrywide Zoom call at eight o'clock tonight, my first thought was, what, during Bake Off? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think so. During the Great British Bake Off, it's the first episode of Great British Bake Off tonight. Mm. What kind of man says, I'm going to disrupt that? From an undisclosed location in North London, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Jessica Vostagiu, and our very special guests, Patricia and Jean Outram, talking about using your talents for feminism. Make your own whoops. Yeah. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White. With me is Jessica Vostigue, and we're talking about using your talents for feminism. Yeah, we are. Jess, it's so nice to see you. It's so nice to be in the same room as your actual self. It's so nice. And today we are having, the reason we're in the same room today is we are having Pat and Jean on the show and they are in their 90s, so it wasn't possible for them to record on Zoom. And They also, know how to use Zoom. Yeah. It's just that the headphone business interrupts with their hearing aids. Yeah, which is absolutely fair enough. So we're doing They're it. probably better at Zooming than you and me. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Listen, they were code breakers in the war. No. They're hardly likely to be less good at Zoom than me. If they can... <laughs> If they can break code and defeat Hitler, I'm pretty sure they can press a Zoom link and uh, they're going to join us later. And they are remarkable women and they did things at 18 that, you know, I'll never have to do. And they defeated Hitler by their early 20s, which makes me feel a bit, to be honest, I'm a feminist, but that makes me feel a, li- a little bit intimidated. <laughs> yeah. Like, what did I do by 23? Yeah. You know, certainly I hadn't defeated Hitler by that time. Um <laughs> So we're very excited to have them on. But that means we have to be socially distanced in a studio um, in order to have these special guests on. But it's nice to be able to look you in the eye, to be honest, because you can't do that on Zoom. I know you can't. Not without looking. You can look someone in the eye, but you, I don't know. I hope this isn't just me. You're sort of constantly drawn back to checking that your own eye looks okay. (laughs) No, that is only you. I don't believe anyone else has noticed themselves on Zoom ever. 
ever. I really think we've looked too much at ourselves this year yeah. and it has turned us into narcissists who yeah. have either gone, oh, I give up, I don't like the way I look, or obsessed about how we look and like, can I make it better? I want, somebody said to me, you know, you can do a sort of, just put it on a setting that just makes you look better than you are. It doesn't and, change anything, I tried that. Well, I found out I already had it on and I was very disappointed. <laughs> Can you imagine my... Imagine? You'd already been auto-tuned. Yeah. It's actually your best singing. So I was thinking, God, I'm looking really bleak. I'm looking really grim. I'm not making any effort. Because, you know, in real life, I love the glamour. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I love the glamour in oh, real yeah. life. I, I really enjoy it. And it is part of my personality is femme gender expression. And I'm not ashamed. I feel like it's a wonderful thing to dress up and have fun and put on makeup. No. And I really, in phase one and two lockdown... You look oh, more swanky for the gym than I do... For a wedding. <laughs> That's not true. It's this true. But I do love swank. I, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I yeah, love a swank. bit of the swank. And I, bastard. and I let it go because I just yeah. couldn't. It just felt so silly uh-huh. putting on my liquid eyeliner for a Zoom I know. call. And I, I just am didn't have actually really early on in lockdown watched somebody um, do an online gig and they had all like, it was somebody that like has like very glamorous look for their comedy. And I thought, oh my God, thank God I never bothered getting a brand. <laughs> to maintain that all through this I mean you know and it can be fun I one day I had to for something I had to yeah. film something and I thought oh there she is I'm back and I started doing it a bit more for myself yes uh, because I realised it is part of me and yeah. I'm not doing it for other people it just I think it was part of the sort of the slap around the face that was 2020 that I couldn't imagine waking up and putting eyeliner on. But yeah. now I do sometimes because I think... Oh, I think it is nice. But also, did you get a thing that where you'd put makeup on for a five-minute piece as part of something mm-hmm. and then it was finished and then you'd be like, oh, okay. There was yes. <laughs> a bit of a slight sort of emotional come down from the... It, yes. took, it sometimes took me longer to put the makeup on <laughs> than it did to perform the performance that I'll record the thing and send it off, yes. not even live, and then be like... And then you're just at home. You can stand outside your front door and hope that somebody notices the effort you've put into your face. Exactly. You're just l- lolling off. around at home then with fake eyelashes on. You've spent, yeah. spent 20 minutes gluing onto your real eyelashes. It does make a big difference. They say that eyelashes is, and this is a real I'm a feminist, but mm. I shouldn't really, I shouldn't really even say this. This you is not appropriate now. on this podcast. So I apologize for it. But I read an article once that said, you know how men, it's like straight men, obviously. You know how straight cis men often cannot notice, like you put on makeup, they just go, oh, you look pretty, but they can't really tell what you've done. Yeah. They can't, they couldn't deconstruct. Oh, at school, you've given me a memory I haven't had for ages. When I sort of hit puberty and got a big spotty chin and forehead, I did that thing that, well, that we all did of like getting really sort of cheap concealer and just sort of, just lacquering it on me. Oh, yeah. and, um And this boy came up to me at school and said, Please don't be offended, but I just, why have you sort of drawn makeup all around your spots to really sort of colour them in and highlight them? Oh, no. He thought I'd put makeup on to go, look at these guys. Oh, he thought you'd put a highlighter. Yeah. He thought I'd given them a pedestal. He thought I'd given them a microphone. Oh, God. Well, in a way, you know, yeah, yeah that's your first lesson Sorry. in feminism. But you, you know. were saying that no, straight put, white cis men put them on a don't notice the makeup. They just they think just, you look nice. Yeah, they just go, they can't really deconstruct what it is. Yeah. So, a lot. I, this is not hashtag not all not men. All, yeah. No, some men can, but a lot of men can't. And apparently, if you show them photos of you where you've done like a half an hour of makeup and photos where you haven't done anything, a lot of men can't see any difference. And yeah. this is a study I read. 
A study. I mean, a study. <laughs> I was going to say what in study. Marie Claire. It was a study. It was a study. A scientific study. study in a dentist's waiting room that exactly. you quickly did. Debs. And the <laughs> men couldn't tell, and sometimes they couldn't see any difference in attractiveness or just couldn't see any difference, yeah. even though you've just spent an hour in the bathroom. They can't see it, the bastards. Uh, but the one thing that makes a difference, apparently, is eyelashes. If you put right. on extra eyelashes, they think you look prettier. According to one study in a glossy magazine oh, so that was probably shit. trying to sell eyelashes. So yeah, don't listen absolutely. to it. You, I'm yeah, ashamed. According to one remember it. eyelash extension making company, men love it when you look. <laughs> I think I like do look different with the eyelashes. the hair of a normal person's head. But just on top and underneath of your eyes as well. I swear I look prettier with eyelashes, with extra eyelashes. I look prettier. I, well, I tell you what they do make you look like. It's a level up. There's no pretending that there's something else there. I think they're a statement of... I've made I effort. had them put on for a panel show on telly mm. and I saw a friend who I've not seen for way too long and she was like, I saw that and was like, oh my God, she's had work done. She thought I'd had work done. I think they make you look like... A bit like contouring does. They make you look like you have levelled up your efforts to... I also think they homogenise, like it's Mm. a look that makes people look kind of similar. It sort of makes everybody, the top of everybody's eyes look the same. I am sorry. I like them. They make me feel prettier. I'm going to continue to wear them. I want to apologise for this and I don't even... I feel defiant, Jess. I don't think... I think you can stay defiant and you can... It's fine. I won't never wear them. I'll wear them when it's someone very skillful's job to put them on me. I'll never put one on myself. If they skillfully do them for you for telly or something... Yes, It's amazing. Fine. When I try and do them myself, they're always a bit crooked and yet I still try. Kiri Pritchard-McLean is a genius. She's a queen, yeah. She could probably do it like on a bucking bronco. She could do them drunk on a bucking bronco. Well done. While an earthquake pound. takes place. Yes. Kiri, if you're listening to this or if someone directs you to it, <laughs> we would like you to take this challenge up because yes. we believe in you and your eyebrow talents, eyelash talents. I am inexpert and I, the only thing would be to do them every day no, to get no, better. But no, I just no, don't. No, no, You're gluing a big plastic fake strip of hairs to your eyelid. I know, that's, I know from one of Rudy's body books, that's the thinnest skin on your whole body. Uh, Stop sticking glues on it. It's delicious. I love mm. it. Oh, I love it. Yum, yum, yum. Please welcome to the microphone, Jessica Foster Q. Oh, thanks. We haven't had done this for so long, and I know I we don't know. have an audience, but it's still so wonderful. It's nice, isn't it? To be in the same room. Yeah, it's so nice. Using your talents for feminism, I found an enjoyable theme to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, first things first, I thought, quick, right, what are your talents? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's um, scrambled eggs, mm-hmm. uh, telling stories with jokes in, and um, irritability. And then I stopped and thought about it and was like, hang on. Uh, these are actually all things I've worked really hard on. Uh, and talents are meant to be things that you're innately good at. So it's weird, I think, that, oh, my God, you're so talented is the compliment that we all crave. Um, but actually what it effectively means is that you've like needed to put very little effort into that at all. It's not a compliment, really, is it? And ironically, you get told you're very talented, usually sort of about 10 years into practising the thing you told you're talented at. Talented should be... 
just something. So, for example, and this is a bit of feminist optimism. I think that generations coming through now of young women, hopefully, are going to be a lot more confident. Because um, my son was in a playground recently with a girl who's seven years old. I later learned, and I earwigged in on their conversation. She was climbing all over the climbing frame, and he was just watching in awe. And um, she said, "You can have a go at this if you want, but you won't be as good as me because climbing's actually my talent." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, okay, Sydney's changed." Also. Um, I was like, well, that's amazing. She's just born climbing. That's what it means, isn't it? She's just an innate climber. She's a natural born climber. Um, so I thought, well, hang on then. What are my actual talents? What are my things I'm naturally good at with no practice? And what is their use for feminism? And I thought of three. One, picking up heavy things. Uh, that does mean that I can throw a tired four-year-old up onto my shoulders. So at least in terms of feminism, I'm staying physically dominant over a minimum of one sexist. Great. Two, I'm naturally talented at spreading my possessions out really far and wide. I don't know how I do it so well. I've done it tonight. I've got items in every space that I've passed through to get to the studio. I can even manage to do it at a picnic. Fork over there, sandwich over there, pudding item over there, ball somewhere else, coat somewhere else, cardi somewhere else. <laughs> like I, I'm sort of like an opposite of a squirrel. And yeah. that's great um, because we all know squirrels are sexist because they're obsessed with nuts. Um, before anybody who's a squirrel pet owner contacts me via social media to say that what I've just said is offensive and that I'm a squirrelist, I will just put it out there now, hashtag not all squirrels. Um, and last but not least, my other talent is shouting, which by its very loudness, I think is a feminist act. Yes. Um, unless, of course, I'm ruining it by shouting, straight cis white men are the best, <laughs> which I will, would never do. Finished. Sometimes they're the best if they're David Attenborough. That's true. There's always David. <laughs> Jessica Fosterkew, that was brilliant. Thank you so oh, much. Nice. And I think you use your talents for feminism all the time, your real Ooh. ones, like being very funny and also expressing all of your inside thoughts uh, in a way that's so relatable. And your show Hench was so feminist and so many people related to it. And it, you were so talented. You got nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award. You're nice. Yeah. Our guests today were self-styled code-breaking sisters during the Second World War. Pat was posted to top-secret listening stations for the Navy, and she intercepted German shipping radio signals. After the war, she obtained degrees at St Andrews, Oxford and Harvard. Good Lord. And then worked <laughs> as a television producer for Granada and the BBC until her retirement. In 2019, Pat was awarded the Légion d'honneur, France's highest order of merit. Her sister Jean was a code and cipher officer in the first aid nursing yeomanry. At just 18 years of age, Jean was posted to Cairo before moving on to Italy to aid the partisan efforts against the Nazis. She worked with refugees after the war before becoming a social worker and then a careers advisor working and travelling globally. Please welcome Pat and Jean! Yay! <laughs> Just to say Simon Robinson is here with you today and might chip in at some point. So if you hear a male voice and you think, who is that? It's Simon Robinson. <laughs> All right. So Pat and Jean, we're so excited to have you here. Um, Jessica and I have been really enjoying your book. Yes. Uh, there's just so much in it. Uh, so first of all, Pat, could you tell us just a little bit about an overview of what you did in the war? Well, very luckily... I knew German because our family had an Austrian cook 
and an Austrian housemaid, and there wasn't much to do for teenagers in the evenings in the war. So I spent a lot of time talking to Lily and Edith. And when I joined the Wrens, I was able to put on my application form that I had fairly fluent German. And they were looking for people who did have German to be interceptors. And I was trained at uh, Wimbledon in a secret training college uh, to search the German Navy's radio frequencies and um, to write down their messages. And that was my secret war work. Wow. Wow. So exciting. And when you say... Your cook, and uh, it sounds a lot like you were raised at Downton Abbey. <laughs> is that, is that, uh, does that reflect the reality? It sounds very grand, your childhood. Uh, it wasn't really a grand house, but our grandfather, who we lived with, had quite a big family, including our parents and uh, us children and some younger sons and members of the family. Yeah. And he always felt he needed a cook and a housemaid. And uh, as he couldn't get English ones, um, you know, we're very lucky that he got the Austrians. Yeah, I'm a quarter Austrian. I have an, I had an Austrian grandmother. And um, so did the Austrian cook, I know you were taught to speak German, but did you have any uh, glorious Austrian cooking? We had glorious dish. Austrian cooking for a few days oh. because, you know, they, they made lovely Vina torta and all sorts yes. of things. But our grandfather preferred plain English oh, country yeah. cooking. I read so. that in the book. He banned it. He said, no, can I have English, please? <laughs> Schnitzel's pretty beige. Could have got away with that. Oh, yes. No, okay. So it <laughs> oh. didn't last long. Okay. It's a shame. It's a shame. But w- were they refugees? Were they Jewish refugees? Sorry. They were Jewish refugees from Vienna. And um, they were with us right through the war, which was wonderful, really. Yeah. It was right in the country in Lancashire. And although they were interviewed by the village policemen to make sure they weren't dangerous oh. enemy spies or something, that was the last thing they would have been. You know, yeah. they were very glad to get to the safety of Lancashire. Well, yeah. uh, it's so often the way with refugees that uh, people think they are the people who are chasing them out and terrorising them. And they arrive at the location with a similar accent and everyone says, oh, it happens now. People say, oh, you're ISIS. And, and they say, no, we're running from ISIS. And so the refugees in your house taught you German and therefore you were able to be useful to the government in wartime. Exactly that. I mean, that was very lucky because, well, at 18, I was able to volunteer for the Wrens. Mm. Quite a lot of my mother's family had been in the Navy. So I chose the rents as my service. Yeah. But I only discovered, of course, when I got in, that they were actually anxious to train people to intercept German radio. And so you would sit there listening and did you ever not understand it? Because presumably what you would talk about domestically wouldn't necessarily be what you would hear on a radio. Would you have to sit there with a dictionary trying to work out what they were saying? Um, we didn't really use dictionaries because it was all rather speedy, really. Right. But we searched up and down the frequencies that our side knew the German Navy used. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you came on very often a carrier wave and you could hang on to this, this was the Germans warming up their radio transmitter before 
they actually sent the message. And then they would start, give us call sign, perhaps. Might go into four-letter enigma code. Might, um... <laughs> Can, you Can you break what our cat is trying to say right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's rather, it's Can anybody break Can the code? Steve? Yeah. Uh, I'll just see. He's... he's uh, I think a German ship just came up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold the broadcast. Do you still speak German, Pat? Well, apparently I do, because oh, really? um, I did an interview for a German radio station earlier this year, and um, I thought it was going to be in English. But they just started off in German, and uh, we continued in German. And I heard afterwards that they thought I had fluent German with a slight Austrian accent. Oh, <laughs> wow! After 70 years. Wow, that's magnificent. And so that wasn't surprising. That's wow. amazing. Absolutely brilliant. And Jean, yes. tell us a little bit about what you did. Uh, well, I was two years, I'm still two years younger than my sister. <laughs> and that kind of competition never goes away. When you're young, it's a disadvantage. I know, I've done my best, but, but it hasn't when worked. you're older, you're it's like, ah, oh, now you're too, the, the tables turn at a certain age. <laughs> I think it's 35 when you go, oh, you're heading towards 40. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I watched Pat's progress and was terribly anxious because I thought the war's going to end before I can do all these exciting things that oh. she's doing. Well, how am I ever going to keep oh. up with half of this? Mm. Half of it didn't end, not just like that. Um, I didn't speak German, I think. I could do a bit enough because we all had to learn a bit of German yeah. in the house. But uh, by the time I was 18, was it 18, when I could join the forces, I started uh, getting in touch to see what I could get. And I tried Pat's, um, what was yours, the... Wrens. Wrens, that's right, the wrens. And they said, oh, yes, we can take you. It'll be cooking and working with kitchen equipment, naturally. And I said, no, it won't. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't what I saw winning the war. So then I made a few inquiries around, and somebody told me there's a very good organization called the Fannies. We don't know what they do, but they do quite interesting things. So I got onto the fairies and said, I want to do quite interesting things. What do you do? <laughs> and they said, we do code and cipher work and things oh, like wow. that. And I said, well, we haven't actually done any, but of course, you know, I should be able to do this, you know, blah, blah. And they took me on and trained me. And so I joined the fairies as a yeah. code and cipher mm. operative. And then to my even greater pleasure, they said, and we want them overseas. Wow. And so I had to go back. I was just 18. Our father was a prisoner of war, actually, in the Far East. And so my mother was keeping the family running at home. Oh, and to begin, very frightened for him. Well, um, it wasn't a good time to say, can I please go overseas? My sister is in one service. My father is disappearing in the Far East. Mm -hmm. What about me at 18? And yeah. she said, no way. But I had a grandfather I was very fond of. <gasps> I, I read about him in the book, Grand Boffin. Grand Boffin. What Boffin. a fantastic name. Yes. So much of what's in the book reads to me 
as better than fiction. I know, it's so yes, a very literary nickname, Grand Boffin. And so it's... it's old... Fresh out of Harry Potter, that one. It's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. The fact that you, people called your mother Bunty and that your father, <laughs> your grandfather was called Grand Boffin and he seemed like a wonderful man. So yes. what did he say when your mother so said you're not I started 18? appealing to Grand Boffin's <laughs> better nature. And when he was 18, I think it was... He had gone off around the world, which was back in the 1890s or something like that. And um, he knew what it felt like to say, I want to go abroad when I'm 18. And also, um, we used to do quite a lot of things together. I was sort of rather his, well, middle his granddaughter, perhaps was older and my brother was younger. And so he used to take me with him quite a lot on things when he wanted company. And so I think he saw what I was feeling about going around the world and being told I couldn't. And I think he spoke up for me. So I was able to join the Fannies, who at the time were taking quite a lot of people. You know the Fannies? First Aid, Nursing Yeomanry. First Aid, ah. They were founded at the end of the Boer War because they needed to get a wounded uh, Englishman in off the bushveld in South Africa. Right. And they needed people who could ride horses and gallop around and throw them over the saddlebar and all this sort of thing. And um, so I joined the Fannies, not with the idea of getting out on a horse quite so much, but that they took people who wanted rather different ways of joining the army. And um, checked with them first, and they said, yes, we can send you overseas if you're 18, uh, provided you get parental consent. So that was my next thing I had to do, that I did. And then, so was it nursing? Uh, Well, it was first aid nursing yeomanry for the South African War. Right. But we weren't doing that. Actually, you were doing deciphering codes. We were doing code and cipher secret work. That's one of a gap here, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) By that time, it had sort of evolved a little bit. and uh, Over nearly 100, no, it wasn't 100 years, 60 years. But yes, we were doing a lot of secret work and code and so You must work. have just been beside yourself with excitement. Oh, I was. I was thrilled. Reading in the book, what's fascinating is the letters home, because there's this sort of, I suppose, stereotype that we have or idea that we have. Everyone was very stiff upper lip and everybody was uh, was very jolly about everything. And you sort of think, oh, well, that's really just a, a stereotype. But some of the letters do read that way. A lot of it was sort of stuff that you might hear a young woman saying now uh, about dating. But within that, there was packed that kind of stiff upper lip, we're all in it together feel. And this is a letter home from you, Pat, that says, uh, would you terribly much mind if I didn't come home if there is an invasion? I would hate to run away while everyone else stayed put. And being at home in an invasion would be much more nightmarish than living somewhere one didn't care about. And there's one that says, I suppose this invasion will come off sometime. I hope we shall crush the horrors once and for all. Daddy seems to think so. And that if they do use gas, it won't be the lethal kind, only mustard, which is cheering. (laughs) (laughs) I I just think now, like we're going through, you know, a pandemic where we're staying in and there's so much more complaining. We rarely say, this is cheering. Um, And I think there's sort of the bravery comes through. But also, I love these pieces about different men that you met. Uh, One here, I heard from Paddy Dumas, an Irishman I met at Grosvenor House this morning. He is in Kent, but determined to come up here when he gets a 48, which I assume means a day off. 48 hours. 48 hours, yes, that makes more sense. 
and he wants to fit it in with mine when I get one. It's most annoying. I wish people didn't always think you mean more than you do. This is just like being on Tinder. <laughs> we did have a rather rapturous embrace in a secluded balcony at Grosvenor House, I must admit, but only in the way one does in a war. <laughs> All... And this is to your mother. I'm just so thrilled that you wrote this to your mother because I wouldn't have written this to my mother. All this, darling, as one girl to another over the hairbrushes which I assume was a, an expression that means when girls talk over the hairbrushes. Mm. And goodness knows, if I'd thought he meant anything, I certainly wouldn't have left him not being the fast type. On the previous occasions, <laughs> remarked Madame Dubery thoughtfully powdering her nose with the fuller's earth. It never has meant anything, so it's rather a shock to find Paddy continuing to yap on the trail. <laughs> <laughs> this is wonderful stuff here that you were yeah. writing home. You seemed often bored by the men, and you're like, well, I've got to have someone take me to a dance, but he's so dull. And you're writing to your mother saying, this man is so dull. Don't worry, mother. I'm not doing anything with him because he's too boring. <laughs> but can you send me my party dress anyway? Because I've got to go somewhere. <laughs> How much of it was a sort of what we would call now a feminist taking control that you could take because there was a war on and you were away from home and you were having adventures that possibly wouldn't have been available to you if it had been 10 years before? Well, I was a bit shy, for one thing, mm. and I remember terribly anxious not to get sort of too involved with anybody because I really didn't want a permanent relationship or anything. <laughs> and, of Don't course, you. you know, we all were quite young girls and there yeah. were young men around. I think I wrote a number of letters to my mother sort of expressing how anxious I was that these young men wouldn't sort of be too hopeful or too, uh, you know, hot in pursuit or anything because <laughs> I really wasn't keen on uh, getting yeah. pinned down. Yeah. And uh, I think this poor young man was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Does history relate what happened to this poor man? Who, the, the, Irish, the Irishman who wanted to come and take you out on his 48? Well, I think, luckily, he was in Kent and I was on the Yorkshire coast or something. Yeah. So it probably would have been a really big effort on his part. Yeah. And well, I, I think it does go on to say you're worried that if he comes, he'll want more because he spent all his money and time getting there. Well, if you've only ordered 48, that's half of it spent getting from Kent to York. <laughs> It'd be a very short date, wouldn't it? <laughs> no. 48 hours leave was very precious. Really. Yes, and, uh, I bet. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. going to have Paddy. There is a real kind of <laughs> sort of liberation and power that comes through. Yeah. It felt like you were really in charge of what you were doing and possibly some of that came from the job. You were doing an important job and so there was an invitation to act in ways that perhaps had only been open to men before that time or, or only open in a, in a wartime. Mm. Jean, tell us something about your travels around the world. Uh, well, yes, because I discovered that with parental permission, I could go overseas if I was 18, not otherwise, I had to be 21. So I went racing back to ask my mother, and I think we said my father yeah. was the prisoner of war, so she had to give consent. My grandfather backed me because he'd done it at an early age. And so then I went back and signed up that I could go overseas and waited to see what happened next. This would be just before Christmas. By January the 1st, they said, right, you're off in a couple of weeks and we can't tell you where you're going, but you're going overseas. Can't tell you where you're going? No, but you've got to have <gasps> your mother must have been oh, so secret. Nervous. You couldn't secret. tell anybody where you went. 
uh, but you've got to have suitable uniform for going to a hot country. Ooh. So I began to think to myself, but anyway, I had to go and order this extra uniform so that I had both northern and southern uniform to go in. And then next thing was midnight, someone at the beginning of January, I was going across London and army bus and we were heading north so we said well if we're going north this must mean we're taking a boat from the west coast because the east coast would only go to germany or somewhere like that mm -hmm. so it must be somewhere heading south or to america or one of those countries and so on and we sailed until we found out where we were going which was which was through the the Straits of Gibraltar, across the Mediterranean, and finishing up in Cairo, which was exciting. I'm told, Jean, that you know some things about nightclubs in Cairo. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> the Tell first us more. It wasn't. It wasn't all code breaking and deciphering. Then. Yes, code breaking and deciphering is the most important, of course. Yes, but the first instruction we were given was if you are in a nightclub anywhere in Cairo. And the, um, what is he, the man who ran Cairo? Can't, can't, King Farouk. King Farouk. King Farouk. King Farouk. If he comes in through the front door, you go out through the back, and all the uh, waiters know this, and they open the door and let you through, just go. Don't ask anybody. So that was wow. the most important instruction we had. Wow. And did luckily, you see him? No, luckily he never came in while I was in one, but I was only there a month or two. Mm. Not big into nightclubbing, King Farouk. More of a board game man. <laughs> oh, I was night. <laughs> I was nightclubbing, all right, but not looking through. Yes. <laughs> was it a bit like Casablanca? That's what I'm imagining now. Because that's yes, in, when, in Morocco in the war. When I saw the film, yes, it took me back very much. Really? It was very similar. And it was all civilian, all the food was there, the food we hadn't seen for years. Uh, the wine was cheap. Uh, you got taken by boyfriends and nobody worried about who they were. I mean, you had to take your own life in your hands. Yeah. But it was a very good social life going on in Cairo. But we were working hard too and it was 24-hour yeah. uh, cover. Wow. For sure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have also heard tell that you went hitchhiking in Italy. This well, I was in Cairo for two months. Yeah. And then we were going to be flown over to Italy, and I'd never flown in my life before, and it was very exciting about that. And then I discovered that the pilots on my flight had actually been on my uh, ship coming out. Mm. So I knew them, and they said, I've never been on there before. Oh, they said, you must come up and join us. So I did the flight as far as Malta, sitting up above with them in the pilot's part wow. of the cabin, watching how you fly an aeroplane. And they said, sit down and see what it feels like. And, uh, so I sat down. Naturally, they didn't tell me to do very much, but I could hold them. Were you allowed to hold the steering yes. controls? Yes. 
Wow. I was up there. I mean, the, the war was a different world. <laughs> and when I came well, down again... You can't do that now. But I suppose no. everything was jeopardy and there was very little health and safety. The most you get now is sitting at the front of the DLR and just pretending you're the yeah. driver. <laughs> well, they all survived. And we came down in Malta. And other passengers they all survived the flight. I thought you meant even after you'd been allowed to fly it for a bit. Yeah, I didn't say, it, but they said it'd been a bit bumpy. I wonder if you noticed. <laughs> so, so you just unscheduledly flown a plane, and then everyone complained about turbulence. Did you say I was flying the plane? No, no. no I didn't think it'd go down well. <laughs> then I came down Malta and they took off again. Flew across Italy and it was covered in almond blossom. It was oh. absolutely enchanting. The whole of southern Italy was covered wow. in blossom. Mm. And I thought this is going to be all right for war. Yes. And we came down in Bari and then I spent the next two years, I think, wasn't it, in Italy, wow. um, working with agents who were in Yugoslavia and other parts of our agents mm. and um, doing their code and cipher from Italy passing messages on to London and all that sort of thing with the people who were working on the underground. So it was interesting. And did you have to pick it up as you went along? Was there any training process? We talked about Pat going to a secret college in Wimbledon, but was there anything before you went, any lessons in that? that? Well, training, I suppose I had done some code and cipher training and translation of right. series, which you couldn't just take straight off. You had yes. to decode in Europe. So I was quite familiar with decoding your... Were you trained at Baker Street? I trained at Baker Street, yes. Yeah. But you, you, <laughs> you know But you look, you look at me like I'm not even meant to know that now. <laughs> like, how did you know? How did you know? I, um, I can neither confirm Deborah or deny. knows everything. No. Yes. I've been tipped off. Jean <laughs> has a good bus story, don't you, about Baker Street? Oh, Baker, yes, it was terribly secret, and we had to get off at different bus stops whenever we could. Oh, really? So they wouldn't know where we were going and all the rest of it. But there were sad stories because there was somebody, what was he called? Uh, Fiance had just been killed, and he tried to show, uh, throw himself off the roof in Baker Street, and then he decided, no, this is not fair, she wouldn't want it. So it was a fairly tense, secret place. Yes. So we were told not to talk about it or what we did or anything mm -hmm. like that. But I was coming down from Baker Street in the bus one afternoon, and the bus conductor looked around and said, any more spies? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> it didn't help. Oh, that's fair. I'm fairly sure he's not meant to say that. <laughs> That's funny. What a naughty bus conductor. <laughs> yeah, they all knew. Oh, dear. They we all kept a secret. Yes, yeah. yes. But not useful did, anybody to... did anybody accidentally put their hand up? <laughs> that would have been worse. Yes, oh, me. Thank you for reminding me. Worst <laughs> spy ever. That, that would be me. Just a big badge on Deborah, wouldn't you? Yeah. Saying not spy. Me, not me. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, and Pat... Uh, while Jean was at one point to actually flew a plane, you learnt to fire a light machine gun. Is well, that correct? Well, I did actually because um, my final listening station was on the cliffs between Dover and Folkestone. And there was always a bit of a risk of the Germans doing a commando type raid on the coast there. So they decided that that station 
we should have an armed guard. None of the other stations had armed guards. They were actually military police, but they were all provided with stun guns, and stun guns are quite light. And sten guns. Sten guns, guns, yes, oh, mm. which is lighter than a Bren gun, for instance. Right. And some of us thought, well, suppose the Germans landed. We wouldn't mind knowing how you use a stun gun in case. So we got them to allow us to do some training. And we used to go across the road into a field and set up little targets and then lie on our fronts and fire these light machine guns, and we got quite good at this. So uh, we never, of course, did have to use them in a serious way. Thankfully. But, you know, I do think perhaps I am the only old lady in Chiswick who might know, if need be, how to fire a stone gun. <laughs> Listen, 2020 is a very odd year. One doesn't know how it might come in handy. Well, I'm glad we're friends. That's for sure. (laughs) It's taking a turn, 2020. You never know. Um, At the end of the war, can I ask you, like, what VE Day was like for you? Did you feel like you both really contributed to this? Well, I was in London by then because once the German fleet capitulated, we had no listening job to do, so we were put on to other jobs like translating captured German documents and admiralty. So when VE Day came, I was in London, and of course the whole city was celebrating, and I was in the crowd that went up towards the palace, and I think I saw Lord Mountbatten in the back of a car at one point, and we were celebrating well into the night, and uh, it was super. But, of course, our family, having our father a prisoner in the Far East, mm. really wanted VJ Day even more. Yes. Was your father all right? He survived. He was able to send those sort of postcards that prisoners of war could send, mm. but they always took months to get back. Mm. So our mother really only knew he'd been alive some months before. But he was all right. He was in charge of a camp. And at the end of the war, he came back by sea. Wow. Um, I happened to be on duty the night before, but we knew it was all coming to an end. Mm. And so I was off duty the following day. But we hadn't had the final uh, information about it. As I could have a day off, I was out with boyfriend probably, because you know, when you had time off, you just went out and had a good meal somewhere or something. And we were walking along the top of a fairly high hill in southern Italy suddenly, and suddenly we heard gunfire, and then we heard bugles and we, all sorts of sounds, and we said, this must be it. And we looked down, and you could see right the way down to the Gulf, now Toronto, I think it was, the southernmost Gulf in Italy, and all the ships were sounding their sirens, the uh, lightning going up into the air. Everything was like a Guy Fawkes night, but it was in the middle of the daytime. He said, this is it. We knew that yes. was the end of the war in Europe. It was quite dramatic to watch it. That must be quite emotional, even if you knew it was coming. I, I was, yes. Well, like Pat, of course, yeah. the great thing was now we're going to get him home. Yes. But just to see peace arriving in Italy yeah. was quite a dramatic moment. Wow. But of course, it was, you know, between May and I think 
July or August before About the Japanese months. war was going to end. Mm. And it was only then that we felt he was really safe. And, and he came home by sea and he met a nurse, didn't he, in Salon? Yes. Who said, I've met your daughter <gasps> in Italy. And he said, no, she's a schoolgirl and then she lives in England. She wouldn't be in Italy. There must be somebody else with the same name. Whoa. So he was a bit astonished when he wow. found I was an adult and wow. served in Italy. How did you oh, meet the nurse that your father... Yes, was it was another time when I was down and I was still working in Italy and I was off duty and we were playing tennis up on top of one of the ridges near Sorrento in Italy. And I heard uh, a boat, somebody shouting from a boat down the bottom of the cliff coming out. And I jumped onto the top of the cliff, which was flat, holding my tennis racket to see who'd called to me and saw a boat full of people I knew who was just taking off from the shore. So I waved at them and fell off. <gasps> and, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. And they all shut their eyes, they told me afterwards, because there was nothing that was going to save me. Oh, there were rocks no, at the bottom. Well. Well. And I thought, oh, this is it. Oh, well, interesting. <laughs> I wonder what happens next. Oh, you know, I was thinking about going to heaven or not. And then I suddenly hit the water. Oh, and wow. I realised... Well, I'm going down and I'm coming up again. And I was laughing so much by the time I come up because it hadn't killed me. And what a drama, you know. <gasps> and then laughing? I saw them all with their eyes shut. Oh. <laughs> so I started crying. Oh. <laughs> but uh, I remained and alive. it was the nurse that looked after you following that who tended well, to check your... didn't have to look after me. No, because you were fine. We you went ashore and I went to a club that night as usual. <laughs> Uh, but I started crying in the middle of the club, oh, you know, and then I was perfectly all right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. didn't matter. Yeah. Wow. There was just such a time of everything was a sort of emergency and everything was on the edge all the time. Mm. And so you had to find your your outs, your places to release those traumas that were happening all the time. And mm. it sounds like you did that by having quite a lot of parties. And <laughs> yeah. Also, it does explain why the nurse would remember you, even That's in a time of extremes. But the, nurse, the, nurse, the nurse met Daddy on yes. his way back. Yes, yes. yes. well, he asked. Yes. looked after you. Yes. yes. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. I did think, I wonder how this nurse remembered you, but now I see how memorable you were. Yeah, you were very memorable. The nurse is not going to forget somebody who's waved at a boat, fallen down a cliff, <laughs> survived... And then gone to a nightclub just for a quick cry and then been fine. I mean, that's quite memorable. <laughs> you, that's an absolute... You, you, that, if you're going to remember anyone from the war, uh, it's that person. Yeah, you know, amazing. You remember just one story. But I think what you did after that was incredible as well. Pat, you went to St Andrews, Oxford and Harvard. And, you know, I know at that time there was still such a... Well, you say in your book that there was no plan for you and Jean to go to university, only your brother, because it was expensive and you only educate the boys, the girls get married. And yet you defied that. You played a very important role in the war. And then you went to three different universities. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, immediately after leaving the Rens, I went to Norway because we were reopening embassies in the west of Europe. And there was a vacancy for an assistant archivist in Oslo. And I had two years, which I enjoyed very much, in Norway, which had just been liberated and was celebrating. But the son of the consul used to come back on his vacations and tell me about St. Andrew's University, where he was. 
And he said, why don't you have a go? It's, the fees are only £21 a year. Um, <laughs> couldn't your family raise that if need be? And I thought, well, why not? Yeah. Uh, because you could get an ex-service grant that would cover your university education ah. anyway. So I resigned my job there. I came back to England, applied to St Andrews, and I got in and went there. And I did um, an English degree with French and uh, philosophy. And I had a, a super four years. It was paid for by grants. And at the end of my degree course, I got a first. Wow. Um, wow. That's <laughs> slip that slip in there. That, absolutely. Yeah. But St. Andrews gave me a research grant to go into two years and get a B-lit at Oxford. Wow. So I went and did that, and everybody was getting exchanges to America. So I put in for an English-speaking union exchange scholarship. That came up, and I went to Harvard Graduate School for a year. Wow. So altogether, I had seven years paid for universities and what I consider the top universities. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, before the war, I had no expectation at all of going now to university. Because of my war service, all that followed. Incredible. And did you experience any sexism while at those universities or were people more open to women being there and including them because of the war effort, do you think? I think they were definitely more open to women. And, of course, most of us were ex-service mm -hmm. women. Well, most of the men were ex-service men, of course. And it was a bit tough on the 18-year-olds who hadn't commanded a submarine or, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the standards of academic teaching had to be very high because we were an older age group and yeah. we'd been around a lot. I just think I was very lucky to have had that chance. It's incredible. And then, well, you took the chance, really. Yeah, um, not just luck, yeah, you earned no, the chance. and you earned it. And then you became a journalist and a TV producer. That must have been, I, I imagine, in the 50s, quite a challenging time to be a TV producer as a woman. What was that experience like? Well, I started as a researcher with Granada Television. Then I became a producer. Then I switched to the BBC. And it was at the BBC where I actually had a production unit to do several strands of programmes. And this young man was uh, sent to us on an attachment. And he said to me, I never expected to work for a woman. And I said rather crossly, well, now you are. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was, you know, very lucky because I had a career entirely producing television programmes. And you can't have anything more interesting than that. Of course, it was black and white television yeah. after the war and uh, very exciting when we actually went into colour. And I thought maybe colour is going to be much more complicated. Of course, no way. It's actually much more natural. And, yes. Um, but uh, I did, uh, for nine years, produce the series The Sky at Night. Oh, wow. And I wasn't quite sure how useful colour was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> as, 
most of our illustrations were black backgrounds with white blobs. But, uh, <laughs> with yeah. white blobs. Yeah. Oh, well, now it's a lovely way of describing the sky at night, actually. A black background with some white blobs. <laughs> and Patrick Moore was, you know, yes, presenting the programme, shouting, wrong way up. Wrong way up. You know. <laughs> and somebody had put a formation of stars the wrong way round or something. So my grandmother did some sorts of code breaking, not at Bletcher or anything, but she's still obsessed with puzzles. Do you both still do crosswords and Sudokus and killer Sudokus? And do, are you still interested in puzzles at all and that kind of problem solving for fun? Well, our mother brought us up to do crosswords. Yes. And we did. But you also did the more... Mathematical type puzzles, I think. I'm not sure I did. I just found that when you're doing code and cipher work, which I was doing all the time, you are very much on the same lines yes. as doing a crossword puzzle. Mm. Your brain's you're, doing a similar kind of process. Yes, very similar. And you're trying to work out where the accidents have been, where the mm. figure's gone in the wrong place or something like that. Yes, going back, being patient enough to go yeah. back and undo find where you must have gone yes. wrong and start again. Where you was corrected. And I was always the one, especially on night duties, I can say, in a code and cipher context where I would be given the difficult ones oh. because other people who didn't do crosswords right. couldn't do them. Yes, oh, or they really? get frustrated yeah. and give up. Oh, really? Well, that's a really important crossword to defeat Hitler. Um, <laughs> yes. It's much, much, much more uh, important than uh, completing the one in The Guardian, which I can never do. Um, <laughs> but Eugene, right. after the war, went abroad again and worked with the Refugee Commission. So we have a strong uh, affiliation with Choose Love, the organisation that helps refugees mm. uh, that started in the UK but is now international on cool. this podcast. And we've talked a lot with refugees and we've gone to Calais, so we're really interested in this. What was it like after the war with working with refugees and the Refugee Commission? Well, I was determined to get back into Europe after the end of the war, and I was living in the next um, election, that's right. Uh, well, our a local man was uh, Fitzroy McLean, and Fitzroy was very keen on working with refugees. He'd worked when he was about a teenager or a bit older, well, 18, 19, something. And I rang him up and said, I want to work with refugees. You're working with refugees in Europe. What do I do to get taken on? And he said, you turn up at four o'clock next evening or three o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, at Lancaster Station on platform so-and-so, and we go out to Italy to go. Wow. Just like that. Wow. And he was taking a party out to work with the refugees in the camps in Italy. And if I wanted to come, I could come. I did. So I went out and worked in Italy for a couple of years, working with refugees in camps. And what was it like? What were the camps like? Well, the camps were pretty good because these were the refugee camps, the ones where they'd saved people who had been in danger or difficulty mm. and who'd got through the war and now needed to be either uh, returned to their native countries or, in many cases, to go on to Mecca, which is what most of them wanted to do and start all over again. Mm. So I was working with these people who were trying to remake their lives and it was interesting working with them. Jean, sorry, just in case it's relevant to your question, how about the refugees in Austria that you worked with who'd been in concentration camps and things and that you described yes. about them holding their string bags? and Oh, yes, and they were setting off life in Europe and they had no possessions, nothing. They didn't know 
how they were going to live there, but they wanted to get out from Europe and they wanted to get to America, nearly all of them. Uh, but they had nothing. And, of course, it was working with the refugee rescue people, mm. a lot of it, like trying to get them out. And was there something else you were thinking of? I've forgotten. Well, you sat in on one of the war crimes, didn't uh, you? That, yes, because, of course, yes, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. I was thinking so much of the refugees. Mm. But I was thinking also, I mean, I was in touch while I was out there working with them, of the people who had got them into these terrible camps. You know, many of them died there. And um, they were being tried, and largely I think the French were involved with the refugee camps and getting the people who were in prison sorted with them. Many of them were actually killed. Uh, but I remember sitting there on an off day, watching and listening to the information they were giving, and they got one of the refugees who had been rescued giving evidence and he stood in front of them, looked at this line of people all looking very senior to himself. And then he pointed one and he said, he gave me a cigarette. Oh. And that was the sort of one big item that any man I heard in those trials ever gave in support of one of the others. It gave you the scale of what had been going on all the time. Yeah. So that was a sort but of defence of something. One, one cigarette. Kindness. It might save his life. It didn't. Yeah. He was killed. God, what it, a traumatic time. It was. Did, when you hear now about refugees coming and the rise of the far right and, you know, you see far right parties in, in Europe and, and some of the things that Donald Trump says about refugees, does it frighten you? Does it remind you of the war and those kinds of ways of thinking? Yes, it does. And, of course, you feel guilty having grown up in a country which is free and people mm. all look after each other and that sort of thing, that you could ever have fought a war where you were accepting the people who were still alive who had behaved in the way that you would never have done and knew that nobody ever should do to another human being. Mm. I did feel that I wanted to get at some of them because I heard the things they did. Mm. But on the whole, I felt, well, that's not going to stop another war. We have got to learn to live together mm. and somehow to stop this sort of um, massacre attitude we have to our enemies, but it's not an easy thing to preach. Do you feel hope now when you look at the news and, you know, this pandemic that must have come at a surprising point of your life and when you read the news about so many people displaced again, and I think we're now at that point where there are as many refugees as there were at the end of the Second World War. Yes, because I went back afterwards and worked with a refugee organisation mm. in Europe. And yes, they would turn up to be taken back to UK or over to America or something like that. And they would have nothing except a bag with perhaps a few crumbs of food in it because there was nowhere they could go to get it. Yeah. And you know, as we went down to the ships and take them on board, we were trying to do everything we could to make it possible for them to start their lives again. Yeah. It, it was a very difficult time just after the war, working with people who'd been through those experiences. Yeah. There's a big refugee camp in Greece that's just burned yeah. down with 13,000 people in it and they're now all displaced and sleeping in car parks on the road. And, and I, I do wish that we would look to the values post the Second World War where you know young women like you were out helping refugees and trying to help people start again who'd run from terror and managed to survive it. So, you know, I do hope that this podcast inspires our listeners 
to think what can we do now to make people's lives easier and can we continue to fight far-right forces and help the people that are harmed by them? My first ever public speech was at the age of 18, 19, I think, to some businessmen from the city. And I was asked to come and talk about my work with the refugees. And I thought, what on earth am I going to say to all these big businessmen who were sitting around looking rather grand? And so I told them a bit about these stories of the ones I'd seen and the terrible lives they'd had in the camps and all the rest of it. And at the end of my talk, there was a silence, and then they suddenly all clapped, and I couldn't believe it. And they gave me a large donation to help the refugees. Yay! People didn't know what had been going on. Well, I think people don't now. I think people get fatigued by the news of it, and they don't even know where these camps are, people. And also with the pandemic and everything else, it falls further and further down the... They're still there. They haven't all gone yet. No. Is there anything else you came to say that you would like to say? Did we cover, you know, the um, way the war helped women's careers? Mm. You know, that people like us who probably would have had very limited chances of a university education or Mm -hmm. anything, in fact... um, had a much better chance of the war. Did we cover that or? I think we referenced it, but it's worth saying again that I think often when men were away fighting and women stepped into those roles, it happened in the First World War as well. But after the First World War, women (coughs) were wearing trousers Mm. and things because you can't really take that away from somebody. Freedom of trousers. Freedom of trousers. Yes. Yeah. (coughs) People will try and take it back, but it's difficult. Get off my trousers, we said. (laughs) Uh, Indeed, indeed. Jean, is there anything you wanted to say that you didn't get to say? One of the things I would like people to do more is not to take for granted the information they're given and go look for themselves because you very often will not get the full story. You'll get the story from the point of view of the person who is doing well. But if you do get a lot of uh, mistreatment or something like that, beware. It probably is being kept from you. Mm. And you should investigate it further and find if you can do anything, you may not be able to do anything at all. But even the fact that somebody is trying to help can save somebody's sanity. Mm. That's that's a wonderful thing to say. I think you're absolutely right. I've had refugees say to me, as long as I know someone's trying, I can keep going. But if I think I'm hopeless and alone, it's very difficult. If you give up it. Um, And I, I loved your mantra that you've kept all your life. Our mantra, which are... Nanny taught us very early age was um, it might have been very much worse. (laughs) (laughs) We say it to each other almost daily. Fall over. (laughs) If you fell over and grazed your knees or whatever it was, it might have been very much worse. (laughs) Still do it. And I also liked was it your father's uh, or your grandfather was it Grand Buffon's Latin uh, crest that he had on the side of his car. Oh, was, it, how did you get that? Uh, I read your book. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> sorry. Thought we hadn't talked about, about his car. Frangus non flectus. Frangus non flectus. Frangus non flectus. You can Frank, break, you can break, break, but you cannot, you cannot bend. bend. <gasps> and my really ma- that. our mother said it, it meant ultra men are very obstinate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think thinking about that in terms of your values, especially if you are 
facing a rise of the far right mm. or you're facing your values around refugees, you can break me, but you can't bend me is a really good mm. way of thinking about life. Yeah. And it's great for feminism. Yeah. You might be able to break me on things because you're mightier, you're more powerful, but you won't be able to bend me. You won't be able to change my values uh, or change my character. It has been such a pleasure to interview you and uh, oh, I could uh, happily talk to you all day. I, a privilege I, and an honour. How lovely mm, to meet you. Thank please you. Please come back for lunch. And we won't record you. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> yeah. Just ask you lots of other questions. Well, thank you so much for asking it's us. so interesting. I wasn't sure we were going to be able to do anything, but you've let us talk. Oh, yes. We were nobody else would have done. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, everyone should. Where can we get your book? And what's it called? So, it's called Code Breaking Sisters Uh by Patricia and Jean Outram. And uh, it's on sale now. And it is the story of the work we did in the war. I haven't read it yet. Wonderful. I'm sure it's going to be a big hit. Is it already a Sunday Times bestseller? Wow. You're in your 90s, Sunday Times bestselling authors. Yes. I think we must be unique. Nobody, well, I'm 97 and I'm 95. Amazing. I'm rising 96 quite soon. (laughs) You know, we expect to have a quiet retirement. (laughs) And And now you're Sunday Times bestselling authors having to go from Radio 4 to podcast to uh, engagement to engagement. It sort of works with your young selves, though. You're the same people that you don't want to just stay home and have a quiet life. (laughs) <laughs> well, we've always done things together, haven't yes. we? And, I mean, Jean argues a lot, you know. It's not, a, not all plain <laughs> sailing. <laughs> it makes it much more exciting. <laughs> Got to keep it spicy. Thank you so much, Pat and Jean. Well, thank Ooh, you. <laughs> we really enjoyed it. Jessica Vostigue, have you got anything to plug? I do have a podcast called Hoovering, which is all about eating, which I would love people to listen to. Very um, good. My, uh, I was before all this COVIDiness on tour with a show called Hench, and um, terribly good a, show. A good bunch of the dates have been rescheduled into early 2021 and depending on when this goes out on the 24th of October I should be doing one the only one that's going to be this year in pool at the Lighthouse Theatre in the big space all really really spread out if we haven't gone back to big smelly lockdown by then listen watch the news to find out if Jessica Foster is allowed to do a socially distant show in pool and whatever happens if you want to come in 2021 those tickets are all on my website just great let's hope by then we really will be out of lockdown yes please um and uh you can follow jessica foster q on social media at jessica foster q jessica foster q thank you so much jessica foster q it has been as ever remarkable and wonderful to do the guilty i've had a lovely time thanks for having me and now playing us out it's leicester legend grace petrie Not my brother nor my country man Not my sister or my friend But you're my comrade be so still the last They shall not pass, they shall not pass Now blood is running through the streets of Spain And London grips in fear 
Oh, smell of gunfire, sound of breaking glass You shall not pass, you shall not pass And why fight the good fight, fight the good fight Why not let them burn I dread the day when the suffering of my fellow is none of my concerns. So stand up today that we might save tomorrow. Oh, I know there's a way that we might save tomorrow. Yes, it's late in the day, but we might save tomorrow if we try. I will not turn against my brother For his creed or for his colour Nor the one he takes his lover or his class You that beckon me that way you shall not pass And you speak of ideology He speak of people like they're pawns Whose motives lie neath frosted glass You shall not pass, you shall not pass In the name now of humanity Not left nor right, not black nor white Tear that fascist flag now from its mast It shall not pass, it shall not pass And why fight the good fight, fight the good fight Why not let them Dread the day when the suffering of my fellow is none of my concerns. So stand up today that we might save tomorrow. I know there's a way that we might save tomorrow. Yes, it's late in the day, but we might save tomorrow if we try. I will not turn against my brother For his creed or for his colour Nor the one he takes his lover Or his class You that beckon me That way you shall not pass Stand up and speak It's not a call to arms Get on your feet It's not a call to arms Get on the street It's not a call Arms. It's a call to helping hands. Stand up today that we might save tomorrow I know there's a way that we might save tomorrow Yes, it's late in the day but we might save tomorrow You and I shall not turn against each other for our creed or for our colour nor the ones we choose our lovers or our class and those that beckon us that way they shall not pass You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Jessica Foster-Q and our very special guests, Pat and Jean Outram, with music from Grace Petrie. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Salinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Simon Robinson, Rachel Craftman, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Woo! Chair.
yeah. recording the song. So I'll just skid my chair about a bit. He'll tell us when. Yeah, so I'm all Is everyone being recorded? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Great. anything you say now is being recorded. I don't need to tell you the implications of that. You're at Bletchley Park. <laughs> hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A huge thank you to all of our amazing patrons sponsoring us at the Smash the Patriarchy level or above. John Quilcoy, Sarah Brown and Sarah Boom. 